0: I want you to travel back with me in our magic time machine this morning to a time when life was simpler, the 1950s. Eisenhower is in the White House. We have never heard yet of ISIS or Al-Qaeda. We didn't know Antifa from an anthill. And in front of a white frame house at 611 Scenic Loop in Marshall, Texas, a group of children are playing. Some are riding tricycles up and down the sidewalk. They're playing in the yard. They're chasing each other. They're laughing and enjoying life as children do. They're happy. Smiling, contented children that don't have a care in the world. And suddenly, their contentment is broken. And their contentment is broken because they hear the sound of music. In the far off distance, they hear the tune, Oh, the moon shines tonight on pretty red wing. And you know what that means? It means the ice cream truck is coming. That's the source of the music. And that's the source of their discontent. And so they stop playing immediately. And they all rush home because they need to get their six cents to buy a popsicle. If they're lucky enough to get mom to turn loose of a dime... They're going to be able to get a fudge sickle. And they get their money and they all come back together in the front yard and they stand there in a group and they see the ice cream truck coming down the street. And the music gets louder and they come to the street and they flag him down and he stops. And he opens the back of the ice cream truck and they get their popsicles and they get their fudge sickles and once again. They're content. Wouldn't it be great if today all it took for us to be contented was a six-cent popsicle? Life would certainly be a lot simpler, wouldn't it? But today we live among the if-onlys. Think about the people you know who fall into the category of living among the if-onlys. If we're honest with ourselves and honest before God and honest with each other, probably at some point in our lives, all of us have been in this category of living among the if-onlys. We look at our circumstances, or we look at the circumstances of others, and we think, if only." When we're young, we think, if only I was older. We get older and we think, oh, if only I was younger. If only I were taller. If only I were thinner. If only I was better looking. Fortunately, some of us never worried about that. You're supposed to laugh when I said that. If I have to tell you, it doesn't work. If only I made more money. If only I had a bigger house. If only my car was newer, if only. And you just fill in the blank. Our text this morning is a passage of Scripture that deals with the if only's. And it's a passage of Scripture that has a very beautiful background. Because it's part of the Philippian letter. A letter that the Apostle Paul wrote as a thank you letter to his friends in the church at Philippi. He wants to make sure they've been very thoughtful of him. And Paul wants to make sure that they know that his thought that they that he knows that their thoughtfulness is appreciated. He writes to them. He says, "I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me has flourished again. Wherein you were also careful but you lacked opportunity. Paul writes to them, and he's afraid they're going to think that he feels that he has been slighted because this is the first gift that Paul has received from them in quite some time. So he hastens to add, you were careful, but you lacked opportunity. It's like Paul says, I don't doubt your love. I've never doubted your love for me just because I failed to hear from you. I believed in your friendship, he says. I believed in your devotion, and I believed in your friendship and devotion enough that I trusted you in silence. I knew you loved me all the time, whether I heard from you or not. Paul rejoiced in this gift because this gift was an expression of love On the part of his friends in the Philippian church. He also rejoiced in it. Because he was sure of one thing. And that was that the gift was going to bring a blessing to the giver also. Because Paul knew it was more blessed to give than it was to receive. And it enabled his friends to share in his great work of preaching the gospel that he was doing. Not only that. The gift helped Paul to meet his material needs. Thanks to the generosity of his friends, Paul could enjoy some comforts that would have otherwise been impossible. And yet, Paul wants them to know something. He wants them to know that while their gift has made his life easier, the gift was not a necessity. He wants them to know that if the gift had not come, he would not have become despondent. He would have survived without it and he would not have become bitter. Because he writes to them in the very next verse. He says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content." Paul had learned to be satisfied with what he has. Paul had learned the secret of contentment. Paul was not a man who was living among the if-onlys. And this claim actually comes as somewhat of a shock to us. It's shocking because of what we know about Paul. Paul is not the kind of man that we would usually associate contentment with. When we think of this virtue of contentment, we most often think of it belonging to someone of a passive nature, someone of a sluggish nature. And Paul was the very opposite of this. Paul was a man who had fire in his soul, And dynamite in his heart. When we first meet Paul, he's a dynamic, blazing persecutor of the church. When we first meet Paul, he's breathing out threatenings and slaughters. And watching Paul as he persecutes the church of the first century, you can almost feel that that outward rage he's expressing is because of a rage that's going on deep down inside of him. And yet in this passage, this hot-hearted man says he has learned to be content. But it's also shocking to us for another reason. When you boil it all down, most of the time we have a rel- relatively low estimation of contentment. Paul says he has learned to be content. Paul seems to think he's found a worthwhile prize but generally speaking you and I don't really look upon contentment as a really high achievement in our estimation in the world we have lived in if contentment is a virtue at all it is a questionable virtue and so we're a bit astonished quite naturally To hear Paul claiming that the achievement of contentment is a prize when we regard contentment more as a liability than an asset. What we need to know. What you and I need to understand is what Paul meant by contentment. Paul hasn't found some counterfeit something like so many today have found. We see folks today, oh, I'm content. But what they've done is they have learned not to care. Many in our world have reached that point. But Paul has not done that. Paul hasn't reached a point where he greets the experiences of life with a yawn and a ho-hum. Because Paul knew that that's indifference. And indifference is a virtue, is not a virtue. Indifference is a vice. And Paul's contentment was not some kind of smug self-satisfaction that he had reached. To be sure, Paul had accomplished many great and many noble things in his life. Paul had climbed to the heights He had reached a point in his life where he could say, for me to live is Christ. He had learned to suffer gladly for his faith and Paul was on his way to becoming a martyr. And the time was not far off that he would pay the last full measure of devotion to Jesus Christ with his own life. But to Paul's credit, Paul never found out that he was a martyr. Conscious martyrs tend to become self-satisfied. Conscious martyrs are likely to become victims of arrested development. Conscious martyrs can become quite obnoxious and hard to live with. Paul was a great saint. But Paul was not a self-satisfied saint. Paul... Was satisfied with the road he was traveling. He was not satisfied with the goal that he had attained. But to Paul, contentment also did not mean that he was resigned to his fate. Some people, I've known them, and you have too. Some people look upon this type of resignation being resigned to their own fate as one of life's supreme virtues. But if resignation is a virtue, it's a very questionable, imperfect virtue. The idea of being resigned to one's fate, resignation carries the idea that you set out with high and lofty goals. You set out to achieve something great and worthwhile, and you've decided to quit and be satisfied with nothing at all or a very poor second best. That was the fate of the ten spies. You remember, Moses sent those ten spies to spy out the promised land. And they saw it was a great land flowing with Milk and honey. But they saw giants there, the sons of Anak. And they said, ten of them came back and said, oh, it's a great land. It flows with milk and honey. It's a bountiful land. But we saw giants there, the sons of Anak. And we were like grasshoppers in their sight. They were afraid. Those ten spies that brought back the majority report, they were afraid of the bloodletting that might be necessary to possess that promised land of Canaan. So they became resigned to the fact that, well, we'll just never possess the promised land. And that resignation was a deadly tragedy because an entire generation of Israel left their carcass in the wilderness because of it. Resignation to our fate. Resignation means not only have we missed the prize, but we've convinced ourselves to be satisfied. With failure. Paul is simply saying. When he says I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Paul is saying that circumstances had not controlled his life. He has learned to approve of the experiences of his life. And it does not mean that everything always turned up roses for Paul. It doesn't mean that everything always was great and wonderful and turned out right side up for Him. You remember Irma Bombeck? You remember the book she wrote, Jelly Side Down? That no matter how well we try to do things, that sometimes life just ends up jelly side down. You know, like you... Have you ever noticed that you take a piece of toast and you put your butter on it and you put your jelly on it and you drop it? More often than not, when that toast hits the floor, it's going to land on the floor jelly-side down. Sometimes life is like that. And sometimes for Paul, life landed jelly-side down. But Paul says, these circumstances haven't controlled me. He says, I have learned to control them. He says, I have learned to live from within instead of living from without. As Kipling said, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. He says in that next verse, he says, I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. I know how to have nothing. I know how to have everything. Paul had known what it was to live in prosperity. Living in prosperity and living with prosperity is often a great achievement. Much more than we often realize. Because generally speaking, the more we prosper, the more discontented we become. The more we have, the more unhappy we can be. Often we're like a child at Christmas, sitting under the Christmas tree, surrounded by toys that looks up and says, is this all? And that's kind of the way we are sometimes. We have all these wonderful things that God has blessed us with, is this all? Isn't there more? What's true of little children is true of us as grown-up children. We sometimes think with pity of our pioneer ancestors. The conveniences they had were few. The amusements that they had were meager. And we are blessed with so many more things than they had. If things could make for contentment, Beloved, our generation would be the most contented generation the world has ever known. But if you look around us, we are like a cat drowning in a bowl of cream looking for something to eat. Because we really don't understand how to be content. Paul had learned how to prosper. Paul had also learned how to live humbly. Paul had learned the secret of doing without. Now, that may not be as hard as learning to prosper, but it's still a great achievement. And he didn't learn how to go without in stoical fashion. Paul learned how to go without gladly. Are you familiar with the southern heroine of fiction known as Scarlett O'Hara Scarlett had a certain kind of grit about her a certain kind of grit that commands our respect and yet Scarlett O'Hara is actually more detestable than she is lovable the war is over And she has to go without. For the first time in her life, Scarlett O'Hara has to actually be hungry. And she bears her lot with bitterness. And she declares that she will never go hungry again. Even if she has to steal or even kill. And she's not above any of it. She never learned how to live humbly. But Paul has learned the secret of going without things. And he's learned how to go without more priceless treasures. He's learned how to deal with not being young anymore and be content to be Paul the aged. He's learned to go with his health because God told him that his grace was sufficient for him to deal with the thorn in the flesh. And he's learned how to rejoice both in spite of it and because of it. He's learned how to go without the approval of the crowd, without the plaudits of the crowd. Paul loved appreciation. All of us do. Everyone who's human loves appreciation. Paul had a great capacity to love. And therefore, Paul had a deep longing to be loved. And when those who heard him approved of what he said, he was thrilled. But his disapproval was not necessary for Paul. There was one occasion that the approval was so great. And he was so popular that the people regarded him as a God. And then there was another occasion where he barely escaped being stoned to death. Paul had even learned how to go without his freeman freedom. He was naturally quite eager to carry on his great work. He had a burning desire to preach the gospel to the whole world. But Paul often found himself in prison. He said, I know how to be abased and I know how to be abound. I know how to prosper and I know how to go without. How did he do it? How did this great apostle, this great man of God, how did he learn contentment? He did not learn contentment by seeking it as an end in itself. You can no more find contentment by seeking it than you can make yourself go to sleep. Do you hear what I said? You can no more find contentment seeking it than you can make yourself go to sleep. Did you ever have a time that, oh, I've got to get up especially early in the morning, so I'm going to go to sleep, and you go lay down and you're going to make yourself go to sleep? How did that work out for you? It never has worked for me. It just doesn't happen. It's as impossible to find contentment seeking it as it is to find real happiness seeking it. Think about the people you know who are really happy. The really joyous, really happy people you know. Those are not the people that said, I'm going to be happy and I'm going to have a good time. Some of the most restless people I have ever known are those who spend all their time and all their energy seeking a good time or seeking happiness. Contentment is a byproduct of seeking higher values. To find contentment, we must have an interest outside of ourselves before we can find contentment. We've got to get rid of some of those vicious enemies of contentment. Things like selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy. But you know what the supreme secret of contentment is? The supreme secret of contentment, beloved, is religious certainty. Paul found it. Second Timothy was the last letter Paul ever wrote that's been reserved for us. And in Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, writing to Timothy, Paul says, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And am persuaded he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul said, I know whom I have believed. Paul didn't say, I know what I believe. He didn't say, I know what I believe in. I know whom I have believed. His faith was in a person. His confidence was in a person. And it was in Jesus Christ. And he said, I know whom I have believed. You can take a baby. And I don't care how good nature, and I don't care how unspoiled a baby might be. If that baby's hungry, that baby's going to be restless. If that baby's hungry, that baby's going to be discontented. And if that baby's hungry, nobody's going to get a minute's peace until that baby gets fed and that baby's content again. Because when you feel that little tummy, then that baby's going to be pleasant. That baby's going to smile. That baby's going to coo again, just like it was doing before. It doesn't matter what comes into your life or mine. We're restless. We're discontented. We're hungry. We're seeking something without God. God is the fountain of living waters, and He's the bread of life remember what David said in Psalm 42, verse 1? As the heart panteth after the water's brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? As the heart panteth. As the finest of the herd of the red deer pants for a cool, refreshing drink of water, just in that same way my soul pants after God. My soul desires God. The fountain source of all real contentment is a solid faith in God. What about you? This morning, right here, right now. Is contentment a part of your makeup? Is Jesus a part of your life? Is Jesus Christ the Lord and Master of your life? You know, you may not have ever heard this before. But if Jesus Christ is not Lord and Master of all of your life, He's not Lord and Master at all in your life. Maybe there's changes that you need to make. Things you need to do differently for Jesus to be Lord of your life, all of your life. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what the needs of your life are. But if there are needs in your life that we can help you with to make Jesus the Lord and Master of your life, this is the opportunity to come and let us help you with those as together we stand and while we sing.